Happy Sabbath. Sabbath. You sound like my first period class. <laughs> Happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath. Amen. I'd like to know that my bodies are before me are alive, and I'm not just talking to dead air. It's good to see you all here. It's good to be back at Spencerville Adventist Academy. I would like to thank whoever chose to invite me. I don't know who that was. They may have second thoughts after today. It's been a long time since I've been able to come and be a part of this church, but I am thankful as always to be able to come here. Although I do have one small thing to talk to Brother Kittleson about. This morning he just mentioned that the, the fun begins this evening. It made me wonder, then what am I? <laughs> and what is now all about? This is not fun. Thank you. No. Um, I have to say that I, I do live, I am living dangerously by being here this morning, and maybe you have that desire for me not to survive today. You know, I am a, a year and a half ago, I accepted a teaching position at Highland View Adventist Academy, commonly known as HVA. No one has killed me yet. Uh, but uh, I, I know that Highland View and Spencerville have a wonderful relationship and that we all get along, don't we? Yes, we do. I am happy that I have my protectors. My wife is here with me today. I'm happy for that. And I know somewhere April Lutz is around. And, uh, you know, most of you know April Lutz. Where is April? I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't say something. But anyway, there she is. How you doing, April? You know, uh, April kind of reminds me of one of my very first days at Spencerville Adventist Academy. I was coming from Glendale Adventist Academy. You, you have to understand, I come from a school that was K to 12, was over around 1,000. And I came to Spencerville Academy, and uh, it was quite smaller than that, a lot smaller than that. And I remember going into the old gym there at the old school, and I saw a young lady playing basketball. And so as a new teacher, I thought I would go up and just introduce myself and let her know who I was and why I was there. And so she's shooting some buckets, and uh, so I go and I interrupt her, and I say, well, you know, it's nice to see you. This, I am Pastor Ziesmer. I'm a new teacher here, and, and what is your name? She says, well, my name is Jessica. And I said, okay, how are you doing, Jessica? So tell me, what grade are you in? And Jessica says, well, you know, I'm married to the PE teacher, <laughs> Mr. Perry. And so needless to say, the conversation basically ended right there. And I, I said, this is going to be a fun journey. I can see this already. I am happy to be up here and having uh, two groups of people helping out on the platform two, that represent two classes. I'll start with the 2005 class. You know, I want to thank Jacqueline Messenger, and I can say this because she's gone. Um, I want to thank her for 
given me my teaching schedule about two weeks before I started my first teaching uh, classes here at Spencerville. And on that wonderful schedule, I was teaching seventh grade Bible. I have never taught below ninth grade before. And so all of a sudden, I'm teaching seventh grade Bible. And my first thoughts were simply this, what am I going to do with these people? I don't know what to say to seventh graders. They come in, you have uh, Mr. Gibb, Greg went somewhere, and you had Tammy and Lynn, they're somewhere around here too. Anybody else in that seventh grade class here? I don't know, but I, I will say this, I had no idea what to do with them. And so we spent many a day on the soccer field during Bible. <laughs> and um, th they were so happy for that. But I will say this, that when I had them for six years, and when they became seniors, I was so ready for them to go. <laughs> and uh, I, had, I had run out of anything to say to them. I didn't know what to say to them. And off they went, and I was happy. But it's good to see them. We have developed a wonderful relationship over the years, and they've been such a blessing to me. Uh, the 2000, and, was it 2003, it was uh, with Rachel and, and Kim. They were the first freshman class I had at Spencerville Academy. And uh, they had developed a wonderful reputation with how to treat teachers. And so, but they didn't know me. And the first words were, you're not scaring me away at all. In fact, I'll scare you away before you scare me away. But we have developed a wonderful relationship as well. And I've, I, I love the relationships I have developed with all my students. And I have to say, mention one other person. I know he's sitting here in the middle somewhere. I just saw him. Well, he was. But uh, my, very, my wife and I this morning on the way back down here were asking, you know, what is the oldest uh, class that you had at Spencerville. And uh, it was a class of four. And uh, it, was, it was good to see Nick here this morning. He was in that very first class. They were seniors while I was uh, in my first year here. And again, I'm used to, I was used to teaching at least 60 students, and now I teach four, and I don't know what to do with them either. So as you guys can imagine, my first time at Spencerville, I had no idea what I was doing. But anyway, I want to thank you again for allowing me to be here. Now this morning, I have to say this before we get going. This is the second service. I am a product of Oakwood College. That should say something for preaching right there. I had a professor, the late uh, Dr. E.E. E. Cleveland. And some of you may know him. And Dr. Cleveland, had a, uh, a wonderful way of putting it this way. He said, I don't preach, Christ I mean, I don't preach sermonettes. Because sermonettes are for Christianettes. <laughs> and so I'm not obliged by the time. Now, this may cause you a little bit of angst, but that's okay. I'm used to that. I deal with that every day. I'm going to preach a sermon. And I pray and I trust that the Lord will speak to each and every one of us. So if you don't mind, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we have entered into 
a very special place. This is your sanctuary. And Father, we have come into a very special presence, yours. And Father, it, it is a tremendous pleasure to be in your presence, and it is a, a very, it is a time in which we can be connected with the ultimate source of the universe. Father, we are thankful for this time. And Lord, I am very, very assured of the fact that I cannot speak without you. It is useless for me to even attempt to do so. And so, Lord, I am praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to take hold of myself, who is a sinful piece of flesh. I am asking for the Holy Spirit to take hold of each and every one here. And through the miracle of the Holy Spirit, you are able to speak which each, with each mind and, each, and reach each heart. And so, Lord, for a few moments, I pray that angels will guide and direct us. And Lord, in your word, no one who ever came into your presence ever left the same. And so I trust that that will be the same today. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'm going to share with you is nothing new. In fact, this is a, a presentation I do to I do with all my classes every single year in some form or fashion. And I've done this with anyone who has sat in my class here at Spencerville Academy, and so I am going to share something that they have already heard. They may have just forgotten, and they needed to be reminded. And so I'm, I think that what I'm going to share is important, not just for them, but for all of us, including myself. And I'm going to start with a simple illustration, and it may be a story that you may be familiar with, and if you have, just bear with me as I go through this. The name of the young man was John. His name was John Blanchard. He, was, he stood up from his bench, and he straightened up his army uniform, and he studied the crowd of people as they are making their way through Grand Central Station. It is 7 p.m., and he is looking for the girls whose heart he knew, but whose face he didn't. He is looking for the girl who is wearing the rose. His interest in her began about 13 months prior to this evening. It was in a Florida, in a Florida library. He was there and he came across a book that he had taken off the shelf and he found himself intrigued, not with the words that were printed in the book, but with the notes that were penciled in the margin. The soft handwriting reflected a thoughtful soul, an insightful mind. And with that, he went to the front of the book, and there he discovered the previous owner's name. Her name was Miss Hollis Medell. Now, understand, this is prior to Facebook, and this is much prior to the Internet or, and Google and all of that, so with a great deal of effort, he searched for this person, this young lady, and he found out that she lived in New York City, a long ways from Florida. And being in the military during World War II, he, the very, he, he knew that he would be commissioned to go overseas. And so the next day, he wrote her a letter 
introducing himself and inviting her to correspond with him. The next day, he is shipped overseas. And during the next year and one month, he began to have this correspondence with this young lady through the mail. Each letter began to put forth a seed on a fertile heart. And soon, a romance was budding. John, like every young man would want to do, he asked her to send him a photograph. She refused. She felt that if he really cared about who she was, it wouldn't matter what she looked like. So the day came, the day finally came in which he is there at Grand Central Station, 7 p.m., looking through the crowd to find the girl whose heart he loved, but the face he had never seen. As he is standing there, there is a young woman coming straight towards him. Her figure is long and slim. Her blonde hair is just laying back on her shoulders. Her eyes are blue as flowers, and she is wearing a green pale suit that made springtime come alive. She is moving towards him. And as she gets closer to him, her lips kind of curl and a smile comes on her face. And she says, going my way? And almost, he says, uncontrollably, I had to take a step closer towards her. But then I noticed something. She is not wearing the rose. The one who is wearing the rose is standing almost directly in back of her. And as he looks upon the lady in back of this young lady, he sees a woman well past 40 years old. Her hair is graying and is, in, is tucked under a well-worn hat. He describes her as more than plump. Her thick ankled feet are thrust into low-heeled shoes. Well, by now, the young lady in that green suit is beginning to move away from her. And so he's going through this, this turmoil. What do I do? Do I follow this young lady or do I stay true to the heart that made me feel so good these last number of months? And so there she stood, pale, plump-faced, with a gentle and sensible smile. Her gray eyes had a kind twinkle to them. He said, I did not hesitate. My fingers gripped the small blue leather bound copy of the book that identified himself with her. He said, well, this would not be love, but maybe something precious, something perhaps even better than love, a friendship for which he had, he had been and must ever be grateful. So he squares up his shoulders, he straightens up his, his suit, and he takes the book and he hands it out to this woman. And he begins to speak, but his speech kind of betrays his disappointment because he, he begins to choke up. And he says, I am Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Maydell. 
I am so glad to, uh, that I could have met you. May I take you to dinner? And after he had finished, the woman looked at him with a tolerant smile, and he says, I don't know what this is all about, son, but the young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And she said that if you were to ask me out to dinner, I should go and tell you that she is waiting for you in the big restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of test. You know, I love sharing this with my senior class to warn them, it's coming, guys. Those ladies will test you. You know, in life, there are tests, and then there are tests. And as a teacher, I give tests to measure the academic character of each and every one of my students. I want them to tell me on their exams, have they learned what I have taught? And are they able to apply the lessons in their life? Now, I just finished giving the final exams to my senior class this past week, and it is an exam that I save every year for my senior class. I've been giving the same exam since I was in California over 20 years ago. And some of those who have been in my classroom as seniors, you may recall this exam. I had a question like this. Well, I have to back up a little bit. I, I, one of my students this last week asked me, you know, you know, how do I study for your exam? What's going to be on the exam? I told him, you can't study for this test. You either know it or you don't. So go back and just chill. Relax your mind and just kind of rest this evening. I got a phone call later that night from another student who says, are you for sure? I mean, this is how you really want us to be ready for your test? I said, yeah, just do it. You'll be okay. And so the next morning, they come in for the exam, and here is their first question. Sketch, if you will, the development of human thought. Estimate its significance. Compare it with the development of any other kind of thought. Okay. Another question. Take a position for or against truth. Prove the validity of your position. And then my wonderful question that they love. I think Jared said he kind of remembers that, this same question. Describe the history of the papacy from its origins to the present day, concentrating especially but not exclusively on its social, political, economic, religious, and philosophical impact on Europe, Af Asia, America, and Africa. Cite at least two original sources, and it will not be necessary to translate. Be brief, concise, and specific. <laughs> you guys kind of remember that? Say, I, I do this for a reason. See, the key to being successful on this test is listening to the instructions or reading the instructions. Because buried deep within one other question is the real instructions. Don't even attempt to answer the above questions. They are impossible to answer, especially in an hour and a half. But rather answer the following questions. I want my students to understand the importance of listening to instructions.
Instructions are important. And when we try to do things our own way, in our own manner, we will always run into trouble. You know, God does the same thing with each and every one of us. God is constantly sharing tests with us. Mark chapter 9, verse 49 says this, everyone will be tested. However, God's methodology tends to be a little bit different than what we're used to. But yet, he is still wanting to measure our spiritual character. Are we in touch with him? Now, God rarely, if ever, announces his tests ahead of time. But he does say this in Job chapter 7, verse 18. I'm reading from the New, uh, the New Living Translation. For you examine us every morning and test us every moment. God is seeking to test us of where we stand with him. What I like about the Lord, though, is that he doesn't always put us through all the tests, but he gives us examples in his word that show us how we are able to pass what I call the tests of life by looking at the tests of others. And so this morning, just for a few brief moments, I would like us to look at one of these examples because this, in my mind, is the most important example of how we pass the tests of life. And this has been a, a goal of mine, a mission of mine as a teacher. I do not want my students simply to understand Bible facts. I want my students to be able to take from the Word of God the principles that God has laid out so that they are able to move on in life. Life is going to give us tests unlike we will ever get in a high school classroom, in a college classroom. And those of us who have been along in years, we understand that. And especially as teachers, we try to instill upon that within our classroom, but for the most part, we get glazed eyes. And so today is nothing new. Today is simply a reminder to all of us what it means to pass the test of life. It comes from a common story, Daniel chapter 3. Most of us are familiar with this. Three young Hebrew men are standing on a plane facing a very large statue. They have been called there by King Nebuchadnezzar to perform an act of worship. And they are to bow down before this statue. And, their, and the failure to bow down would result in death. That's a test. From their story, we can learn how we ourselves can master the test of life. First and foremost, the lesson that they share with, the, share with us is that their, their stand was a clear stand. It was a stand that was open, and there was no attempt to blend in. It wasn't like they decided when they heard the music, you know what, this might be a good time for me to lace up my sandals. No. 
These three young men, as they heard the command through the music to bow down before this statue, they were not going to bow. And they stood tall, and, they, and their stand was very, very clear. There was no doubt in their mind that they were standing. They teach us an important lesson if we are to follow God. And that is this. Our stand for God, our stand for truth must be clear. There are people around us who are searching and who are looking to see if there are people who are different, people who understand what is happening. And in this day and age, if there is a time in which we need to be very clear in who we are and what we stand for, it is now. We need to understand this. These three men show us that people should know who we are. As a teacher, I want my students to know who they are and not be afraid of who they are. And I hope that at some point I instilled that lesson. Do not be afraid of who you are. George Knight in his book, The Apocalyptic Vision and the Neutering of Adventism, Asked, very, asked four very important questions. Why have a Seventh-day Adventist church? And I'm going to use the word church loosely as well. Church is not an organization. Church is not a building. Church is me. Church is you. Church is us. And it doesn't matter how old you are. You can be in cradle roll. You can be the, the elder of the church. It doesn't matter. We are the church. And so the question is simply this. Why have a Seventh-day Adventist church? What function or use does it have? Is it important? Is it necessary? Or is it merely another denomination that turns out to be a bit stranger than some of the others because of its so-called hang-up? with the seventh day and certain dietary issues. George Knight went on to say that when he was at a question and answer period, he made this point. And that was this, if Adventism loses its apocalyptic vision, if it loses who it is, it has lost its reason for existing as either a church or as a system of education. If we have lost our vision, then what good are we? If we have lost our vision as a school, if we have lost our vision as a church, if we have lost our vision as Seventh-day Adventists, what good are we? When a church becomes politically correct in all its claims, and when it loses a proper amount of sanctified arrogance regarding its message and its mission, it manages to neuter itself. These three young men were not going to allow their careers, and they were very successful, as you know in the story. They were not going to allow their careers. They were not going to allow their education. They were not going to allow their social standing within their community to define who they were. God's word would define them. And so the same should be with us. The culture around us should not 
define who we are. God defines us. But too many have bowed to fashion and money and philosophy. God is looking for a people who can stand for the truth laid out in his word. People need to see the difference. They are seeking something that is different. They are looking for people who are willing to make a stand. Thomas Rainer, Tom Rainer, in his book, Surprising Insights from the Unchurched, Tom Rainer led the Rainer Group, which was a denominational consulting firm through major churches throughout this country, had a list of the 13 factors that, uh, that show why an unchurched person will pick any church to attend. Why do people pick a church? The two bottom ones intrigued me. Number one, the lowest reason why anybody picks a church to attend is location. Most people, they don't care where the church is. They will travel for hours to get to a church. The second one even intrigued me more. Worship style and music. The second lowest one for why people pick a church. It has nothing to do with music style. It has nothing to do with, me, with the worship. The top three are this. And I just heard this morning, this is a goal of this, of this church. Number three, the friendliness of the members. People will pick a church based on how friendly the members of that church are. And the top two are this, doctrine and pastoral preaching from the pulpit. That's why they pick a church to attend. And Barna did the same type of study, and he said the same thing. For those who do attend church, when they pick a church, the number one reason has to do with the teachings of that church. You see, it told me very clearly that there are people who are looking for a church that stands over and against the society that's around them. Why come to a church that's the same place and where you're coming from? One, he says, that is arrogant and believes that it has the truth, that it believes that there is truth, there is error, and that this church has the truth. And so the question that I ask each and every one of us this morning, are we giving them what they need? Are we bowing to the pressures around us? Are we giving in to secular society in our daily walk each and every day? Or are we giving them something different that they need? See, these three young men, they didn't care what the others around them thought of them. They didn't worry about it. For them, it was standing for what was right. And you know, their stand was not made in just a moment. You know, it took a while to build a statue back then. It wasn't one of those you just took, put an air machine and it blows up. It took a while for them to build that statue. And these three young men walked in the top part of the political circle of Babylon. So they weren't ignorant of a statue being built. Not only were they not ignorant of a statue being built, but they knew what the purpose of that statue was. In ancient times, all statues were meant to be worshipped. And so while this statue was being built, and as they are sensing all of this, they knew before they stepped their foot on the plain of Dura what their decision had to be. 
They had prepared themselves ahead of time to face that test, just like any good student would do. They will study ahead of time, and they will know what needs to be done. These young men, when they came, their stand, was they were well prepared for it. In the decisions of our lives, we too must be prepared if we're going to make the right decisions. And where does this preparation begin? It begins in the home. As parents, we are called to prepare our young children to be able to face the challenges of life. And this preparation continues in the church. As a church, we are training young people to stand for what is true. And it continues in the schools, where as educators, we are called to train young men and young women that once they leave our institution, they know who they are, and once they set out into the, the world of work, they are able to face the challenges that they are going to have to deal with, especially the spiritual challenges ahead of them. These young men knew what they had to do. And these three young men had to make their stand alone. You know, as far as the eye could see, they were the only ones standing. Can you imagine the peer pressure? Everyone about, around them is bowing. Not just pagans, but other Jewish captives as well are bowing before this statue. And they had to do it on the, by their own. Because, you know, one of the great... I love taking this time to be able to share one of the greatest mysteries that you will find in the Bible. Where was Daniel? Where was he? The Bible does not say, does it? Now, and so we can only speculate. Was Daniel too ill to make the journey? Was Daniel in some country that he couldn't get back in time to, to be a part of this? Or could it have been that Nebuchadnezzar himself knew where Daniel would make his decision. You see, when you read the book of Daniel, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar were closely tied to each other. Nebuchadnezzar knew what type of character Daniel had. And he knew good and well that if Daniel was put out there, Daniel was going to embarrass him because Daniel was not about to bow. Which tells me something as well. What type of character do those who associate with us see? Do they know that if something they want to do is not right, that you will stand against it? You may say something. You may not participate. What do they see in our own characters? But I think Daniel, I mean, God also had another reason for having Daniel gone. Could it be that Daniel wanted to see these three young men not depend upon Daniel to make their decision? You know, a lot of times we depend upon others, don't we? We depend upon others to help us to make a decision. And the reality is this. We have to make decisions on our own. No mother, no father, no brother, no sister, no friend, no teacher, no pastor can make the stands for truth for us. We have to make 
our stands alone. Some of you may be familiar with the Solomon Ash experiment on group, conthord, uh, group conformity. I, I tend to show this experiment in my classes, in which in the 1950s he started this experiment by putting groups of people, men together, small groups of men together, and everybody in the room except one knew what was going on. And everybody in the room was to give a wrong answer to certain questions, except, and purposely, to see if the one who was with them who did not know what was going on would either go along with their answers were, or would be convicted that he had the right answer. It's a wonderful experiment that shows that human beings have a tendency to go along with the crowd around them, even if they know that the crowd is wrong. You know, it can be lonely. It can be, there can be a lot of peer pressure for standing for what is right. Everybody going in one direction and you know it's the wrong direction. Everybody at your job is going is this way. Everybody in your classes or your classmates are going one way. Everybody at the college that you may be attending is living this way and, and you know it's not the right way to live. And so what do you do? Do you want to stand out and be peculiar and different? Think of these three young men. They were willing to do that. Romans 8.29 says this, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The world around us is doing its best to shape us into its image. I see it more and more now than I have ever seen it before. Our young people that I, that, that I see in front of me each and every day, they are, they are being molded by the, the society that they have to deal with day in and day out. The world is trying to shape us into its mold. But ladies and gentlemen, we are not to be shaped by outside forces, but rather we are to be shaped from the inside force known as the Holy Spirit. These three young men learned something very quickly, that when you stand for right, you're going to have to deal with consequences. You see, we, we knew the end of the story. We, we see the end of the story, but these young men don't see the end of the story. They didn't know if they were going to survive the fiery furnace. All they saw were the flames, and all they felt was the heat. But they were willing to accept the consequences of their decision. They were willing to stand for truth. They were willing to stand for the Lord, no matter what was going on around them. You know what? Standing for the Lord may require some suffering. It may require some discomfort. It may require some pain. We may lose a job. We may be overlooked for a promotion. We may not even get the job that we so much desire because we know that it's not right. Or the people there just don't like who you are because of what you stand for. There are many jobs out there where people just don't want to hear about God. They don't want to know about God, and they are uncomfortable with people who stand for what is right. Standing for what is right, you may receive isolation from your family and from your friends. You may even have to end a special relationship with somebody else because of taking 
a stand for God. And taking a stand for God may require death. We all hear stories of people around the world who have stood for truth and they have had to suffer the ultimate consequence in death. But whatever the result may be, it should never determine our decision. Our love for God and what he has called us to be outweighs everything else. Now, fortunately for these three young men, because they stood, God did not abandon them. In fact, Jesus was in the midst with them. And so if Jesus is the center of our lives, neither he, he will not forsake us. He will not abandon us. He will see us through. And so as we face the fires and the tests of the world around us, no matter how hot they may get, Jesus says, they will not destroy you. Most of us may have never heard of Nikolai Burkharn. During his day, he was probably one of the most powerful men on this planet. He was one of the Russian communist leaders who took part in the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. He became the editor of the newspaper, Soviet newspaper, Pravda. He was a full member of the Politburo. His works on economics and political science were studied for years and years afterwards. The story goes that one day in 1930, he made a trip from Moscow to Kiev to address a large assembly of individuals. And he wanted to share with them the stupidity of Christianity and the power of atheism. And so he stood before this crowd and he gave them his heaviest artillery that he could. He insulted Christianity and the stupidity of Christianity with every in every possible way, through insult, through argument, and through proof. An hour later, he is done. And he looks out with a proud look at what seems to be the smoldering ashes of men's faith. And he asks, are there any questions? There's a deafening silence throughout the entire auditorium. But then one man stands up, stands up into this crowd. He walks forward to the platform. He goes up and stands next to this Russian leader. And he looks to his left and he looks to his right. And then with a very loud voice, he puts forth these words from the Russian Orthodox Church. Christ is risen. And with those words, the people suddenly awoke out of their stupor. And they all rose in response and said, yes, he is risen indeed. Nikolai thought he had them. But through one man, his entire hour of lectures were destroyed by the standing of one man. God is calling all of us here today. He is calling us right now at this very moment to stand 
for truth. He is telling us that we need to stand so that the world around us can see who he is. Winston Churchill, as he is standing before the House of Commons, made this statement. We must always be ready to meet at our average moment anything that any possible enemy could hurl against us at his select moment. Satan is hurling every weapon of hell at all of us. He is throwing it at especially our young people today. Every weapon of hell is being thrown. And so my challenge to all of us, are you up for the challenge? Are you able to stand when everybody else is bowing? Thank you.